This is the Bell Books and Stories podcast with me, Kay Hutchison. Welcome, I'm your host, Kay Hutchison, and you're listening to the Bell Media podcast, where we take a look at some great books and the stories behind the books. In this episode, I'm speaking to an extraordinary lady behind some of the most successful screen adaptations of recent years. She has built a reputation for making early discoveries of brilliant books to adapt for the screen, when these stories are still only in manuscript stage, sometimes many months before publication. She discovered Slumdog Millionaire some two years prior to publication, And as we know, it went on to win eight Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay. She also discovered Salmon Fishing in the Yemen, while still in manuscript. And the story also went on to be a huge box office hit starring Ewan McGregor. She knew instantly that she wanted to secure the rights to The Miniaturist after reading Jessie Burton's wonderful debut novel, well before its publication. There was a fierce bidding war between publishers But after a year, she did eventually secure the rights and went on to develop and exec produce the drama for BBC One and Masterpiece. It won and was nominated for many awards. A supreme talent spotter. What's her secret? How does she know what's going to work? And once she has found a great story, what does she do to transform the narrative on the page into an experience for the screen, either big or small? Recently, she set up her own company, Alchemy Entertainment, to develop high-end drama and film properties, and she's already had a deal with ITV Studios to give them a first look at what she finds. I hope we can shine some light on all of these areas in our conversation. I'm delighted to introduce Kate Sinclair to the Bell Books and Stories podcast. Hello, Kate. A warm welcome to you. Hello. (laughs) Very nice to see you. Not see you, even hear you. <laughs> no, no, indeed, indeed. Um, I'm always impressed by the many different things that people have done in their lives when I interview. But I think you deserve a prize for one of the most impressive backgrounds. Uh, you started out in theatre, training in Poland. You then worked at the National Theatre in Poland and won awards as a theatre director. You also worked at the Royal Shakespeare Company and the Young Vic. Then you moved across into film, working for Film 4, UK Film Council, Ardman and Kudos. And then you switched to TV and at the end of 2018 founded your own company, working with producers Kevin Loder and Paul Ritchie to help you source, develop and produce new work. Uh, To me, that's quite a career path, very exciting. Um, interested in where Poland comes in, and was there a plan to all this? No, that's. Uh, that, I, I have to say, you describe it as if there was a plan, which is very flattering. But I would say the one thing there wasn't was ever a plan. Um, it was a very. It's been a very eclectic, but but rather joyful journey as a result of doing um, very many different things. And um, I've just always followed my passions and. In a, in a strange kind of way, um, I probably ended up going full circle and I'm now a sort of maker again, where, which is how I started out when I went into theatre. Um, I, very originally, I, I wanted to be a theatre designer <laughs> um, and for various reasons, 
including at the time sort of lack of funding and the inability to do sort of postgrad design work, I I um, ended up at English National Opera in the design department. And they had a wonderful scheme in those days where you could go and observe anybody in the building doing a job that you thought you might be interested in, providing you did it in your own time. So I went and saw David Poutney directing La Traviata. And I thought, oh, that's what I really want to do. I just don't want to do it with music because I don't know enough about it. And then I looked for trainings in Britain to be a director And there were none because it was sort of Thatcher's Britain and it was quite difficult times for any arts training. And somebody told me about postgrad trainings in other countries. And that's how I ended up going to Poland on a a British Council scholarship. How fantastic. That's amazing. And did you um, have an interest in these sort of things when you were very young as well? Or was this something later on? Yes. No, funnily enough, when I was about seven, I wanted to be a writer. And then I probably didn't do any writing till I was much older, but I always loved books. And then as I got a bit older and got taken to the theatre, and we lived not that far from Stratford, uh, only probably about 40 minutes away by car, I started going to the RSC. And, you know, that sort of combined my love of story with seeing the story animated. And so that's how I got really passionate about um, about theatre but yes I have to say I've, I've been a massive reader and love books and was sort of plaguing the poor woman with the mobile library in our village every week <laughs> from a very young age so uh, yes uh, yes I'm a great book lover from from early days so you started early so I can see the the visual and the the sort of production side of things right from re- really from the get-go but over the period of time now I, I presume you've read thousands of books now but but you've developed a particular specialism and have built a reputation for sourcing great properties early on and there are some very big titles on your list of successes so I want to ask you about one that most people will have heard of can you tell me about your experience with Slumdog Millionaire while you were working at Film 4 because you actually saw it two years before publication how, how does that all work how did you manage to discover that so early I, I actually most of the things I buy uh, nearly everything I, I, I buy or have bought is is in manuscript for various reasons I, I knew people in publishing and had always been interested in public so when I went to film four they uh, you know said nobody here is doing novels or looking into novels but we all knew that obviously I think 50% of um, Oscar winning films come from books so they knew it was a great resource for film so um, they asked me specifically to look for books and really because we obviously have such great writers here in the UK um, getting in early is important because otherwise it, it you know it gets sold all around the world and you suddenly find it's been bought by an American studio so I, I really sort of befriended people in publishing whether it's agents or or publishers and I started reading material very early and and with Slumdog I think I was the first person other than the editor and the agent to read it (laughs) and probably maybe the publisher who who had decided to buy it so I read 50 pages and and the wonderful um editor who was a, a lovely woman called Jane Lawson uh she she was literally giving me sort of 50 pages at a time as she herself was was ahead of the reading but she was getting it from Vika Swara the author 
The book was called Q&A, and as has always been called Q&A. And within the first sort of 50-odd pages, I knew it was an, an incredible story, an incredible concept, which I hadn't seen before. And I remember ringing my then boss and saying to her, listen, I, I was freelance at that point at Film 4, and I said, you know, if you don't buy it, I'm going to buy it. And she said, pitch it to me in two minutes. <laughs> so, so I did over the phone. And then she said, we have to try and get it. But of course, it was a, that was a long journey, really, because, you know, there's the author writing in India, his first novel. He'd never heard of really of Film 4 and was thinking, well, why should I sell my book to these people in Britain? And I haven't even finished it and it hasn't been published. And so in the end, I flew to India and I had a very long lunch, about five hours with him in Delhi and persuaded him to sell it to us, uh, which, he, which he did. But it was just such a wonderful uh, story concept. The, the main character was so wonderful. I just had an absolutely gut instinct that it would be something very important. And I, I've, al I've always bought everything on gut instinct. That's, that's how I do it. I just think, would I spend my own money on it? Yes or no. <laughs> and that for me is the trigger, really. And is that relationship, I'm thinking about the, the broadcaster or the distribution side that's going to take it, is it, is it important that you have a very good um, relationship with them and they champion? Once, once you have said, look, we really need to go for this and they've got hooked in your two-minute pitch or whatever it was you did and you obviously put yourself out hugely because you believed in this, but is that relationship really, really important to establish at the beginning with, with Film 4 to, to really champion what you've come up with? Yes, I think in fairness, Film 4 were fantastic. They had only newly reopened. They'd had a spell when they'd been closed. And so it was a sort of new regime and they were absolutely passionate about books and they gave me a kind of, you know, really a lot of freedom and they trusted my instinct. And, and so I bought a lot of great material for them. But that was really also them supporting me to, to buy it and saying, we trust your vision, you know, that it's good stuff, basically. Mm. And now that you had persuaded the author to let you go, I mean, does the author maintain some sort of involvement in what happens to their story down the line? Is, is it quite close or, do, or does it vary? It really varies. For me, it's always felt absolutely integral because I've always felt, you know, if you put yourself in the author's shoes, if you spend years writing a book uh, and, you know, in the case of somebody we'll probably talk about later, like Jessie Burton, where she spent like five years writing The Miniaturist and done thousands of drafts and everything, that's a huge investment of your time, your passion. It's really your creation. I think that you've got an awful lot of knowledge about it and a lot you feel emotionally about it and you want to say about it. And you, so, so for me, as, a, as an individual, I always really, really want to involve those people and all the things that I've had, you know, power over the development of. Um, I have always involved the author, you know, a lot, basically. Um, I, I think it's it's kind of daft not to really. Yeah. Can I just ask? Um, presumably, not everything that you acquire rights to actually gets made. Is there a kind of rule of thumb? You consider X options, um, but you you acquire the rights to Y number, but only a tiny fraction goes on to become 
a final project. That is the case with all developments in film and television. And I'm sure someone's done some clever algorithm or calculation to tell you the ratio. But I remember when we worked at Film 4, we we were, you know, looking to try to make four to six films a year. And we knew that we had to have 80 projects in development to do that. You know, it was it was a huge amount uh, that either falls by the wayside for, for many reasons, not necessarily to do with the project or just takes a very, very, very long time to happen. You know, um, I think if you look at it's not not connected to me, but the Patrick Melrose books, which have just obviously been so successful for Sky. I mean, they were in development when I was at. at at Film 4 in 2005, and they've only just come to screen sort of, you know, a year ago. So they've had a long development history, and that that can be the case, but not because the project isn't good, it's just um, finding its time and its moments and everything. So so is it is it years? Can it be? Oh, years. I think that was about 13 years. We had another project called under the skin which film four made and I think that took more than 10 years to come to screen so yes it can be a very long haul but that's the case whether it's from a book or from a script too it's not necessarily about it coming from a book and basically I'm sure a lot of people ask you what makes a great story for the screen but I'm very aware that you know trends and fashions you know come and go but do you think there are certain things that you know that's going to make a great story for the screen, regardless of what the fashions are in terms of what is trendy right now. I, I'm afraid I don't really go for what's trendy right now because because I know that the process is so slow and can take so long that actually I think you just have to think, is this a universal story that will always speak to people? What What is the scale of audience that it will speak to? You know, is it only a very small audience uh, that's quite eclectic or niche or, or is it a bigger audience and does it speak to you because you know I, I try to buy the stuff I would like to see on screen myself and that's what I felt about Slumdog or in fact any of the things I bought I I don't try to buy um, strategically like thinking oh it's a thriller so I, I, I have to like it or oh it's a rom-com and they do well I never ever think like that I, I just go Oh my goodness! This this has definitely got legs. So like it's very very much a gut instinct, and as a result, I think the books I've bought over the years are one is nothing like another. They're very eclectically different, I think. And does that mean? I just want to press you a little bit on this idea of of the trends and fashions that that I see just now, and very different from several years ago. Does that mean that once you've caught your universal story that that touches people and is relevant for people that by the time it actually gets to the screen these uh sort of trends and fashions have to be reflected or do you really uh reject that completely and just stick to what you know and what you think would work at the time you uh first read it yeah for me again i think it's just about it's always about the story being universal i don't really believe in trying to pick a trendy subject for now that TV and film are not the right medium for that. Occasionally there's kind of wonderful happenstance and something that you've been pursuing for several years or or developing for several years just happens to hit its moment and it feels like everybody knew in advance that was going to hit a particular time or 
cultural or political kind of feeling or whatever that that would make it very resonant. But fundamentally, I think it's got to be deeper than that. And you've got to feel like you could more or less make it at any time because it's such a good story and it's got something important to say and it's got longevity. You know, I don't think Slumdog is a story that could only have been told then. I think you could equally make it now. And the same with the other things I've made, like The Miniaturist or Salmon Fishing. They're just um, really heartfelt universal stories that had something important to say. So where do you actually look for new stories? You've, you've sort of said that you're, you've got good connections. So I'm assuming that network of connections that you've built up of, over the years is absolutely uh, key. But, and how does your work differ from that of a literary scout who is a much narrower field, I'm guessing? Yes, I think mine, I, I mean, I, in fairness, um, I, I have never used a literary scouts. So I've always scouted for myself. And over the years, people have sort of asked me if I wanted to in the various places I've worked. But because I, I, I couldn't really explain why a book sings for me and I want to make it, <laughs> it would be quite difficult to give them any really meaningful remit, you know, other than a very broad area. My understanding is that quite often, you know, either a client has a particular director or writer that they're looking for a particular type of story, which would be very focused, or they're trying to provide a range of, of a material in an area like, you know, crime or something that's broader. And, you know, they, I think they try and sort of tailor that to each client. That's, that's my understanding. Uh, whereas I don't think to myself, you know, when I wake up, we must have a crime story on the alchemy slate. I just go and see the agents and publishers and say, What's so-and-so doing or what do you have that's interesting? Or And sometimes I rule out things. For example, we don't make any children's uh, TV or film. So I'll say I'm not interested in family or, you know, um, so so I, I kind of rule things out if, if I'm going to see agents or publishers. But some of these relationships I have, you know, they go back for 20 years so I just ring up somebody whose taste I really like and I go and see them and say, you know, what's so-and-so doing or do you have anything like this or whatever? And then they say, you know, we've got something that's on the list in whatever, two years or whatever. Or, or they say this person who you like is their next book is whatever. And that and that's really how I've always done it. Or they suddenly mentioned to me a, a new writer. I've actually just optioned something last week with a totally new writer who had never heard of, never met, never read his work before. And um, he's written a wonderful novel. It's not published yet, but it's just a really, really clever idea and it's beautifully written. And so, um, you know, but I didn't know his work before or, and they just introduced him to me as an editor who um, I've met a couple of times and I've actually worked with her father for a very long time who's a wonderful editor and so it, it really varies from project to project I'd say. Let's just um, take a, a minute to talk about The Miniaturist which you made for BBC television. I mean to me I absolutely adored it. it's such a beautiful elegant film and um, for those that haven't seen it yet and you really must it's set in the 17th century Amsterdam it's about a young country girl beginning a completely new life as the wife of a wealthy merchant. The really interesting thing is her wedding gift is a doll's house replica of their home, including all the characters. And it transforms as the story unfolds. A really, really interesting thing. And it was a 
debut novel by Jesse Burton. And I know you read it in one sitting and were determined to have it, but it wasn't that easy, was it? Can you tell us the story? I know it wasn't because there was uh, there was understandably absolutely huge interest in it from all the publishers. I think there were about 11 uh, or maybe more publishers after it. So there was a fierce bidding war. And obviously um, the agent, who's a very good agent, Juliet Mushens, she knew that they were sort of onto something quite rightly. And so I was badgering the poor woman <laughs> saying, can I meet you? I want to option it. And, and she was like, well, kind of hang on a minute, hold your horses. You know, we've got loads of interest in this book. We're not really sure of the strategy and what we want to do yet, which was absolutely right. And I completely understood. But eventually um, she kindly agreed that I could meet her and Jessie for lunch just to speak about how I saw it and what I thought you could do with it. So we had a lovely lunch in, in town and and I pitched them the idea that you could make it for three hours of television, that I felt that if it was a film, the danger would be that you might have to lose some of the story because it is a complex story and an awful lot happens. And obviously when you've only got like 120 minutes or less, the danger with a complex story is that you can have to you have to sort of strip it down and and you lose some important details. And so they got very excited about that. But then they also wanted to explore film, which I completely understand. And I sort of said to them, well, I'm going to make you an offer, but I'll just leave the offer on the table and you, you go and explore film. Because, you know, no one knows when they're going to write a book again where you might have half the world after it you know which was the case they were in they were in this incredible position where everybody and all the kind of international rights were doing incredibly well and they knew they had an international bestseller just because from the levels of interest everywhere and so they did explore film I don't really know the story of that because I just left my offer there and said come back if anything changes and then I just kept nudging regularly. <laughs> About eight or nine months later, they actually came back and said, actually, you know, of all the people we've talked to, yours is the idea we really like and we'd like to explore it in TV. So then we did a deal. Sounds to me like um, they, they really gelled with you in that meeting, but obviously it, it, you, you were seeing a drama and they were just going for film. Um, and also thinking they wanted to prepare to, to compare that. Well, well, I think when you're at a point where, you know, you could have a major filmmaker, a Scorsese or a Spielberg or somebody coming through your door, I think they were right, absolutely right, not to kind of close down their options and not just see who, who might come out of the woodwork. And if it had been some incredible, artistically amazing filmmaker that they, that they will make a feature film, I could have absolutely seen them going that route. And I did say that to them. I said, you know, if that's your choice, I completely respect that. But on the other hand, if it's not your choice and you start to think about TV more, I mean, there has always, obviously, historically, there's always been, um, it's not exactly a snobbery, but but often people would rather make a film than TV. I think that's, in the last few years, that's massively shifted, which is good for TV. But historically, you know, when I was buying books in film, it was so much easier to buy them than, than for the poor people in TV, because often trying to persuade broadcasters and things to do books as, as TV was a much harder process. That's obviously all been completely changed with all the SVODs coming onto the market and everything. But um, anyway, they, you know, they, they came back to me and said, listen, we want to we do it with you. And that was fantastic for me. That was a great experience. So 
So really what I'm, I'm hearing from what you're saying here is that the bidding process, which you know often we just think is about money, but it sounds as if it's about money, exploring all the different options, but also it's about the team that you're going with. So it's, it's much more kind of holistic decision. I mean, it, it obviously depends on the author and the book, but I think in my experience with the type of books I try to buy, it's always more about the artistic vision the way you see it, the type of broadcast you're going to go into, um, who you want to attach, the writers you know, it's always more about that. Because again, I think if I was a novelist and I'd written a book and then it just got turned into something that I hated and I felt gutted about, I'd be, you know, I'd be destroyed having spent all that years writing it. So, uh, so I think on the type of material I buy, I mean, as I say, I'm, I'm not buying big famous names in fiction or crime or where they can more or less sell to anyone for the highest price. I'm, I, that's not the type of material I'm trying to buy. So I, you probably have a different answer from somebody who, who is buying, I don't know, the next Michael Crichton novel or the Richard Harris novel or whatever. That's probably a different experience. Can you give us a, a little bit of insight into the, the sorts of changes that need to be made to make a book work for the screen. I'd like some some specific examples from work that you've done and the sorts of changes you've had to make. Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, the, I, I mean, I'll stay with the miniaturist for a moment because um, that's, you know, I literally was involved in the process from the very beginning right the way through to the very end, which I haven't been on all the books I've optioned. Um, so I, I knew that one of the, the, the fantastic things in the book was that the miniaturist was a very sort of a bleak and um, mysterious figure who you, you didn't, who Nella never met. But I knew that that wouldn't work on screen because it could be quite frustrating that, you know, you spend all these hours hearing about this person, but you might see them out of the corner of your eye, but you never then got to know who they really were. And so that for me was a very critical thing that we had to construct a meeting between Nella and the miniaturist. Um, and Jesse was incredibly open to that and, and, and agreed and was very happy for myself and John Brownlow to explore with her how we might do that and, and what that meeting might be like. And then the, the two other things, I mean, one was a tiny thing, it was a sort of funny thing really, is that we thought it would be quite sad that Peebo just flew off and was never seen again. And Jessie told us that actually quite a lot of readers had been very upset about that. So she was very happy if we could find a way of rescuing Peebo. So, of course, we decided to tie those things in together. And, and, um, Will you just tell us who Peebo is? Sorry, Peebo is, <laughs> is Nella's parrot, parakeet, actually, in the book. But we, we had a, an actual parrot playing it because parakeets are quite difficult to deal with. Um, so uh, we had a parrot called Polly. He was very intelligent. Um, but it's the only thing she can bring with her from the country into this strange, exotic town world. And it flies out of the window very early on in the story, and she's sort of gutted because it's her only kind of friend and the only thing she has to talk to. And in our version, the miniaturist has found it and rescued it and gives it back to her. Um, so that, But that wasn't in the original. And then the other thing was just the story about the role of the sugar in the story. So... Johannes, who is the man that Nella marries, um, he's been given a, a, a huge and very valuable amount of sugar to sell. And he's, he's already a very wealthy merchant, but it's going to make or break him in, in terms of how he survives amongst the other burghers in Amsterdam. 
And it was never really clear why he sort of vacillates about selling the sugar in the book. Um, And so we decided that we needed to make that much clearer uh, and link it more to how his enemies specifically could try to bring him down in and using that sale or non-sale of the sugar as a way of exposing in their eyes his his flaws and weaknesses and it's a it's a, a lovely strand in the work because it's, it's a very it's visually quite beautiful as well so I think I think it really worked it certainly didn't feel like something that wasn't there to begin with no and actually I have to say it was also something that we had a lot of um, input in a very positive way from our co-producers masterpiece uh, in America because it was something you know they knew a lot about because as you probably know at that period I mean New York was in fact originally like New Amsterdam and so there's a lot of links between uh, Holland and the sugar trade and everything and, and America and they felt very strongly that that part of the story needed to be clearer as well and that was an absolutely brilliant note from Rebecca Eaton it was a really good note so and um, I, there must, um, I don't want you to talk about Jesse Burton uh, specifically but um, there must be uh, positives and negatives in working with first-time writers because obviously there's a lack of experience there. But um, maybe you disagree. I have to say, I've never had a bad experience. This sounds weird, doesn't it? But with a first-time novelist, they've all been lovely. You know, Vikas Swarup um, on Slumdog. I mean, obviously, I, did, I wasn't across the whole process of that because it took about eight years, that, the development of that film, from me buying the book through to it being on screen. Um, and I was only at Film 4 for sort of half that period. But, I, you know, the meetings I had with Vikas, he's such an intelligent and wonderful man, and it was a, it was a joy, really. Um, the same with um, the, the sad, late, lamented Paul Torday, who wrote um, Salmon Fishing in the Yemen, who was also charming, open and delightful. Um, Jessie had the added uh, uh, positive that she knew a lot because she was an actress, had been an actress. She knew a lot about the process of, of, um, you know, what it's like to be in something about filming. So she understood you can't always just say, I want this person to be in it and it happens. (laughs) And of course, she ended up being in the Silversmith's Ball. She she plays a tiny cameo role in that. (laughs) She wanted to be in it. so that was nice. But I, I, I literally, I've, I've only ever had really positive experiences. I've, and even with um, things where they haven't happened, uh, you know, uh, with very famous authors, I, I optioned a book by Thomas Keneally, who is absolute darling and the most wonderful, wonderful writer and man. And obviously has had many things made into films, um, you know, most famously, of course, Schindler's List. Um, but he was an absolute joy to develop and work with. It just sadly that project, unfortunately, we got sort of uh, stuck on the rocks because he was about Napoleon, and there were lots of other projects about Napoleon out there at the same time, you know, which which can happen. So, but no, I I have to say I love novelists. I think they're wonderful people. I think you have probably have a, a very um, good way with. Uh, the people that you're working with as well, because you you have to shape things, you have to really get under the skin of all the projects that you're actually championing yourself. I mean, that's one of the wonderful uh, ways of working that you have that make you so successful. Um, I just want to talk about um, your alchemy um, entertainment. It's relatively new, 
but you very quickly and, and in a funny sort of way I'm, I'm not really surprised uh, why you have um, what's called a first look deal with ITV studios so can you tell us what that actually means and, and how is that going can you tell us anything about alchemy yes I mean I, I set up alchemy at the very very end I mean really at the sort of dead end of, of, of uh, 2018 um, I, I was lucky enough to be able to bring uh, the five projects that I had in active development at The Forge with me across to Alchemy, um, which included two books, one very big book called The Three by Sarah Lotz, um, which we'd been working on for some time and um, uh, we're very excited about. And another book called Anatomy of a Soldier by Harry Parker. So I brought brought those five projects with me and... um, have a very uh, long uh, working relationship as a colleague through over the years with Kevin Loder, who is a, a sort of genius, really. And um, we'd always wanted to work together. At various points, we'd sort of tried, and it, it hadn't happened because of sort of where we were or, you know, we talked about working together three years earlier and I'd just accepted a job somewhere else, <laughs> you know, so the, things like that. And so we we sat down and I said my plan was to set up on my own and asked if he would like to be involved and he said he he would I mean he's doing many other things and has his own other companies and things and the same with Paul Ritchie who has also worked with Kevin a lot and I knew them both and so um, I just thought we could be a sort of fantastic team and then we talked to a number of distributors actually but we just loved ITV Studios they just felt like the right fit for us and very interestingly for us they had not only companies that just made television which a lot of the distributors do they also had companies that had worked in film or made film so they had and and a very interesting mix of companies you know everyone from sort of Cat Leia who make Gamora through to Warp who, who did the virtues for them there are a lot of people that we all knew anyway from our because because Kevin Paul and I come first from a film background so I so I suppose it it appealed. They appealed to us as a good partner, and we've we've got a what's called a first look deal, which is a distribution deal, which you know is for several years, and um, we we develop things for them to distribute internationally. Um, uh, but they have the same ambitions as us about the kind of material we want to make. They like our talent relationships between the three of us. And actually, you, you're the only one that's that's full time, aren't yes. you? I mean, I, I want to ask you just a little bit about the pressures on you, because at the moment we're talking about these projects take years uh, in the making and, you know, you have lots of, of different projects. But is there a huge amount of pressure on you to keep everything moving, all these many projects that you've got on your what's called the, the slate? I mean... Do you feel pressured? Uh, no, no. I mean, obviously, all of us, I think it's been weird in the COVID times because, you know, firstly, everything got sort of shut down. And for lots of people, and that was much worse than for me, because at least I'm at the early stages of alchemy. And so everything's, you know, quite naturally in development as opposed to production. But um, I think for people who are in production, that's been really tough. And it was good to see that there's just been an announcement by the government that there's going to be some finally some help in terms of things getting moving again and for insurance and things for projects. So hopefully that will all start to, things will start moving forward. 
But I, I actually, weirdly, I must be one of the few people that I felt quite lucky in the COVID times because, um, you know, my, I always knew that my first year or couple of years would really be about cracking on and getting uh, the development slate up and running, getting the projects where they had scripts, attaching talent, actors or directors. And so, you know, I've gone from having five projects to having 30 in a year. And, you know, quite a lot of them are quite far down the road in the sense that they've got, you know, key talent attached or they've got, you know, in terms of a director or, or an actor or they've, they've got people interested in them, even though they're not green lights yet. So actually, I'm, I'm very used to working on my own. And in lots of places I've worked, I've sort of either worked from home or very much on my own anyway. So, I mean, for me, the weirder thing would be more or less to work in an office with other people, which I have done, but I've done a lot less of. And as I say, I can always get Kevin or Paul on the phone and we speak regularly and they're very, particularly Kevin, they're very involved and, you know, I run everything past them and they suggest things to me and I suggest things to them. So I actually, even though, of course, you know, he's doing Avenue 5 with Armando and Nucci and he works with Roger Michel and Paul's been working with Deb Patel and, you know, so they are all doing other things. But actually, I think I don't need them to be there eight hours a day, five days a week. And, and, and you know, we're too, we're too little and new to need that, really. And, and I always knew that by going to people at the level they both are at, um, as I say, particularly Kevin, you know, I'm lucky to get a corner of his expertise all time, really. So, um, you know, I don't think it would ever be possible to go and say, you want to be full-time here that would be kind of ridiculous given everything else he's got going on it sounds like it it works uh, really well I was wondering that were there any fish that got away that you sort of thought oh I really wanted to get that one and I didn't get it there have been although usually the funny thing is they've got away because of something other than the fact that I sort of wanted them if that makes sense so I've had a couple of deals which I, I will should remain nameless where I've thought we had a deal and then actually the agents or whoever has gone and done a deal, a better offer came in and they've done that, which is never a pleasant experience, but it does happen sometimes. And those I kind of just root them out of my heart and think, well, I wasn't meant to make them anyway. But as they haven't generally kind of gone on to be things that have yet appeared, I, I then think, oh, well, maybe they weren't going to be so wonderful either. Um and do you have a, a favourite screen adaptation of a book yourself? Oh, that's too, that's too hard a question. That's like Desert Island Disc being asked for your luxury. <laughs> or your favourite book. Um, I don't. I think there's so many wonderful ones. I mean, interesting ones are things like John Hodge doing train spotting for with Danny Boyle. I mean, that's so different to the book, but so spot on. There are things like that where you just go, Oh, that's really clever. But no, this we've, we're so lucky in this country. We've got some really fantastic talent of writers, you know. Um, I mean, Peter Strawn doing Wolf Hall, that's an absolutely beautiful adaptation. You know, I think there are some, we've got some incredible writing talent. I mean, I thought John did a brilliant job on The Miniaturist, so I'm probably biased, but I thought he did a fantastic screenplay. And he, in fact, we won an award for that for Best Adapted Screenplay from a book. Um, so I, I think that we're really lucky in this country that we have, you know, superb actors, really superb writers also, and some fantastic directing talent. 
uh, as well as some very good producers. So um, that's why all the Canadians, Americans, everyone comes and makes stuff here. Is I think we've just got some really great artistic talent here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we're sort of coming to the end, and I, I guess my final question is uh, looking to the future and what 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 is really exciting you know I know it must be very difficult for you to, to pick something but what is really exciting you at the moment I just, maybe it's just the opportunity to read hundreds of books <laughs> I have to say I mean I'm I am really excited about this project the three that I have with Sarah Lotz it's something we've worked on for a long time and it's the most fantastic book and fascinating story uh and she is such a clever person and it's it, you know, we, we've actually ended up writing the screenplay of that together. I mean, who knows what will happen with it? But, it, you know, that's very close to my heart. But then, you know, I'm also equally excited about optioning this new novel last week from sort of baby unknown writer, which has just got this wonderful concept at the heart of it that's so unusual. And I pitched it to a big screenwriter yesterday and he was like, oh, wow, what an incredible idea. And yes, I'm definitely interested. Come on, let's keep talking, you know. So I think everything from the sort of twinkle in the eye stage to when you've got a script and you're going, I wonder if some actor that I love would like to do this and seeing if they like it too. Um, you know, John's got a project that he that he invented, John Brownlow, which is actually not based on a book, but is an original. And, you know, we've just taken that to a very big actor who shall remain nameless at the moment. But but he loved it and is, wants to do it. So though, all, all of those different elements, you know, are exciting to me. And it's very varied. It's a very varied um, job because, you know, one minute you're reading a book, the next minute you're in the nitty gritty of dealing with a script with a writer, the next minute you're talking to an agent about an actor and whether they're interested in doing something, the next minute you're talking to ITV Studios about who might buy something internationally. So it's very, very varied. And I, I do really like that variety. Mm, I, I think your love of your work really comes across. I read a description of you as um, passionate, determined and smart as a whip and that you fight hard to preserve the essence of the project. And I, I really think that's come out in all of your answers to my questions. And I'm just so uh, glad you agreed to be my guest today. Such an interesting area of books and stories. Uh, is there anything I've missed that you would no, like to say? I'm just, I'm just so impressed by that last quote. I feel deeply flattered. I want to know who it was now. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll email you or put it on the podcast list. Thank you so much, Kate. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank really you. enjoyed it. And all that remains for me to do now is to thank you for spending time with us and listening to the Bell Books and Stories podcast. Studio production was by Perrin Sledge and I'm Kay Hutchison. There are lots of interesting podcasts in the series now. Subjects include the Scottish captain, Hurricane Hutch, the smart feminist novelist, Mavis Cheek, Downton Abbey composer, John Lunn, playing his famous tune, At Home, and Stanley Johnson, not the politician, not the celeb, but in our Books and Stories podcast, we focus on Stanley Johnson, the conservationist and author of 25 books. Lots to enjoy, and I hope you'll find a little space in your day to listen. Please join me next time. I'd love your company. In the meantime, bye for now.